maybe we'll we'll get started. There's a, a good number of us here now. Welcome to everybody um, and to all those of you on Zoom as well. We have about 22, so 26 participants on Zoom so far. So um, my name is Millie Lake. I'm an associate professor here at LSE in the International Relations Department. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, I'm just going to um, say a couple of words myself and just to let you know how we'll kind of structure the next hour and a half. Um, we will have, uh, after I have introduced the session, um, today we'll have Jessica Watkins, who is talking about her book, Creating Consent in an Illiberal Order, Policing Disputes in Jordan. We'll speak for around 15 to 20 minutes, um, just outlining the, the key arguments in the book. And then Yazan Duran is an assistant professor at the Department of Anthropology at the London School of Economics, and he will provide some discussant remarks for about 10 minutes after that, and then we'll open the floor for Q&A. And I would invite all of those of you here can kind of raise your hands when we, when we get to that portion of the event. And those of you on Zoom, please feel free to type your question into the Q&A box on your screen, and we will, um, I'll collect questions to pose them to, to Jessica and, and um, Yazan after, um, after the remarks have concluded. So please, everybody also, just to remind you, the event is, is being recorded. And I would um, like to begin by just saying what a privilege and an honor it is to be here to um, talk about this book. So I first met Jessica in, I think, my second year at LSE, and we connected over her book and, and the book publishing process, but also a shared inter interest in policing. So I work on uh, post-conflict institution building, predominantly in, in Central Africa, but in other conflict-affected, violence-affected contexts around the world, and had just also recently kind of started a project on policing that overlaps really nicely with Jessica's work. So I remember being um, incredibly compelled by her project, and specifically with the relationship that she explores throughout the book between order violence, coercion, and state power, which intersect with many of the issues I work on in Central Africa. Um, and the, the, one of the kind of really compelling pieces of her work for me, I think, was her engagement with the, the creation and production of, of coercion and order from below and, 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 and the relationship between the creation of, of order from below and, and, and state building from above. So I have a, a whole bunch of questions I would love to pose, but I don't want to take up too much of our time, um, although I may, I may take my chair's liberties and, and pose some questions after if we have chance. Um, so I just to kind of formally introduce our two panelists, Jessica Watkins, our speaker and author of the book today, is an analyst at the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, which assists the investigation of serious crimes committed in Syria currently. She is a visiting research fellow at the LSE Middle East Center and a research associate at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies. Giga. So um, between 2017 and 2021, Jessica was a postdoctoral research officer on LSE's conflict research program, and that's in the capacity that I met her back in maybe 2018, I yeah. want to say, um, focusing on regional and domestic drivers of conflict and peace in Iraq and Syria. Jessica has a BA from Cambridge in Arabic and French and a master's in IR from the War Studies Department at King's College and then a PhD on civil policing in Jordan, which comprises the, the focus of this book also from the War Studies Department. 
at King's. Um, Yazan, who joins us on Zoom today, is an assistant professor, as I mentioned, in the Department of Anthropology at LSE, and an anthropologist whose work straddles the linguistic and sociocultural branches of the discipline with close engagements with social and legal theory, conceptual and social history, as well as moral philosophy. And his work um, blends ethnography, genealogy, and history to shed light on questions of social justice in contemporary post-colonial context with Jordan as a primary field site. So we couldn't be luckier than to have him discussing this book here. His current um, research and book project takes the Arab Spring protests in Jordan as an ethnographic entry point to think about the post-colonial political present and the paradoxical status of the rule of law in it, both as a mark of post-Cold War emancipatory projects for social justice and the condition of possibility for various kinds of injustices. So I am so happy that you have all taken time out of this amazing day, um, <laughs> a rare day uh, of um, this nature in London. So I will turn over to Jessica and I'll give you like a couple of minutes warning when you hit close to 15 minutes, but you can obviously take all the time you want just to make sure that you know where you're at. Thank you, Jessica. Oh, and just to mention, as well, there is a discount um, on the book on the QR code, which I think is going to be on the PowerPoint, so you can feel free to photograph it um, or take note of that if you would like to, to buy the book, and I strongly recommend that you do. It's really a wonderful read, so thank you all for being here, and I'll turn over to Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much, Millie. That was quite an introduction, and um... Thank you also to Yasin for agreeing to discuss the book today. Um, and thank you all for uh, coming with your um, in the audience or online. Um, so this is actually my first in-person event for over two years. Um, so I'm super excited that it's for the occasion of my book launch. And I'm even more excited that it's given me the chance to come back to the Middle East Center, because as Melly said, I was uh, up until last year, I was based here as a research officer. So it's really nice to see some um, friendly faces. Um, so uh, I'm, and I'm back for a one night only. Um, so so it's, it's great to be here. Um, so I should note that I am currently working for the United Nations, but the views that um, are expressed in the book and the views that I'm sharing today uh, do not and necessarily reflect the official position of the UN. Um, so I have a lot of individual thank yous to make for helping me in various ways to complete this book. Um, you're in the acknowledgements and I, I see various people on the panel and in the audience and I expect online who I need to thank personally. Um, in the interest of time, I am just gonna say at this point that the biggest thank you is to um, the, uh, all the people in Jordan who helped me when I was doing my field work. Um, and then to name a few of the institutions who really were uh, instrumental. So um, the War Studies Department at King's College London, where I completed my PhD. Um, the, uh, let me think, the Center for British Research in the Levant and the Center for Strategic Studies at the University of Jordan, where I spent a lot of time whilst I was uh, in Jordan. Um, the Public Security Directorate in Jordan, um, and also Siren Associates, who are based in Jordan, who facilitated multiple um, interviews for me. Um, uh, the Middle East Center, of course, the German Institute for Global and Area Studies, where I actually finished off the book last year, um, and of course, Cambridge University Press. Um, and 
although I know he's not listening today because I, at least I hope he is taking our kids to a swimming lesson. I want to say thank you so much to my husband. Um, thank you, Reese. Um, so uh, I started working on this book in 2010. Um, it was just before the Arab uprisings kicked off. And the motivation came from having worked uh, in Iraq as a civil civilian translator to the British Army in the early 2000s. At that time, the Iraqi police was being reconstructed virtually from scratch. And in retrospect, we can say with pretty disastrous effect. Um, the police became po politically factionalized very quickly as a result of the uh, new political settlement that was imposed. And they were also implicated in sect-based targeting, uh, targeted assassinations, uh, particularly in the 2005 to 2007 period. So the idea of the police as an agency that Iraqis could trust and take their grievances to um, was really fantastical. Instead, crimes or disputes between citizens, what I call interpersonal disputes, were uh, often managed by figures from within tribal networks and or religious associations. So this book is not at all about Iraq or the Iraqi police. And actually I have quite different ideas now about uh, drawing comparisons between those police forces. Um, but just to explain how I arrived at the topic, uh, I wanted to look at a context in the region where the police did have a meaningful role in managing interpersonal disputes, um, but where the tribal and the religious dynamics appeared somewhat comparable, comparable to Iraq. And uh, Jordan seemed like a good candidate in that respect. Uh, plus, at the time, the monarchy was uh, very keen on projecting an image of Jordan as an oasis of calm within the region. And clearly, public security played uh, a major part in creating that image. So uh, what's it all about? Um, so the book is about the police uh, as an institution in, in uh, Jordan, specifically the Public Security Directorate, or PSD, Al-Amn Al-Am, uh, but it's also about how the police relate to other state or non-state or quasi-state actors that also have a role in providing justice. Um, and most importantly, it's about the processes involved in managing interpersonal disputes in the Jordanian context. So I borrow from legal anthropology in um, an interest in the disputing process which is something that takes place in every society with varying levels of uh, police involvement. Because I think that a great way of assessing how a state is attempting to promote social order is to look at how it responds to signs of disorder. And tracing the disputing process is a way of uncovering the underlying norms and structures, institutions or rules of the game that perpetuate society. And it's also a way of gauging where they're coming apart. This approach differs somewhat from studies on authoritarianism in the Middle East that see the police primarily as instruments of surveillance and repression. In that context, they, they highlight the state's responses to crimes perceived as threats to the state, like things like espionage, sedition, treason, and terrorism. These types of crimes are, are subject to what Jean-Paul Baudet calls um, high policing. Instead, this book really focuses on low policing, i.e. the management of much more common types of disputes between citizens, of things like verbal abuse, common assault, petty theft, uh, domestic abuse, occasionally murder, um, which in some cases may be treated as disputes and in others as crimes. 
And that's not because I want to in any way downplay the significance of repression or surveillance, because clearly it takes place in Jordan and even more so in other parts of the region. But it's because I think that a focus on low policing gives us a different type of insight about what kind of state Jordan is. So the offences that the book considers are mostly non-political in the sense that they don't target the state, but their management is certainly political in the sense that um, it's characteristic of a broader social uh, order that the state is promoting which combines neo-tribal, neoliberal practices into the projection of a sort of civic responsibility. It demonstrates the extent to which the state through the police is able to permeate the relationships between citizens and how it informally favors some parts of the population above others. So that's one of the core ideas of interest uh, that comes through. Another is the notion that the police don't just uphold social order in Jordan, they also have a role in co-creating it. And here I borrow from the new police science, um, inspired by Foucault, who looks at the productive power of the police. I argue that the police use different strategies of power to co-produce social order, and by extension to produce consent. So violence or coercion is certainly one of them. Um, but in reality, it's generally a last resort. The application of civil law is another strategy. And of course, in a Western context, we're very familiar with the idea of uh, the police as officers of law enforcement. Um, but again, when we look at what the police actually do, in Jordan and elsewhere, law enforcement generally appears to feature quite low down the list. By comparison, the police often draw on social and cultural norms or on their alliances with different sections of society to de-escalate potentially explosive situations or a combination of several different strategies in order to promote order and in one way or another public consent. And the book uses case studies to examine how in different scenarios the public security directorate uses these various strategies to bring about or negotiate order. Uh, so in this context, coercion itself can be seen as part of the process of creating consent and that's another one of the key ideas running through the book, that there often isn't this binary between coercion and consent when it comes to producing social order. I draw on Gramsci's a theory of hegemony to unpack that idea. And rather than seeing consent as being something that is necessarily granted spontaneously, I see it as emerging out of a process which in fact sometimes involves coercion or rather a hegemonic project. So there are some of the key ideas that come through. Um, Turning to how I researched the book and how it's structured. So the most crucial source of information um, was from semi-structured um, qualitative interviews. And I conducted over 130 of these between 2010, 2018 in Jordan. And they were with a combination of current or uh, currently serving or retired police officers, um, public officials, lawyers, um, human, right, human rights activists, figures of authority within tribal networks, um, international development actors, and also some victims and some perpetrators of uh, crimes or disputes. But the research also draws heavily on the importance of uh, changing processes over time. And for that, I rely on uh, primary and secondary sources documenting the early days of the state and beyond. So I also draw on Jordanian government websites and NGO websites, Jordanian newspaper reports, um, official uh, police magazines um, published by the Public Security Directorate. 
Um, in terms of structure, the earlier chapters of the book established the historical, social, and legal context for contemporary policing. So I look at how the regime's shifting alliances with East Bank Jordanians and with West, uh, Western liberal democracies have affected the promotion of different aspects of order, reflecting notions of tribal identity and neo-tribal traditions, um, but also notions of participatory citizenship in a neoliberal environment. I draw out the historical development of the police in Jordan since the Ottoman period and look at how the PSD became progressively more institutionalized and specialized um, since its separation from the army in 1956 uh, from the General Intelligence Directorate in 1964, its incorporation of women in 1972, and its temporary separation from the gendarmerie between 2008 and 2019. I also look at how traditions of legal pluralism in Jordan fed into police practice. Um, the later chapters in the book really reflect on contemporary practices of dispute management conducted by the police alongside other administrative rulers and societal actors. Uh, so I examine the police relationship with tribal elders and community notables and their management of crimes, including assault and murder, as well as traffic accidents. Um, I look at how the Family Protection Department within the PSD deals with domestic abuse alongside women and children's rights groups. And in the process, I reflect on how and why the police have recourse to embedded social norms to manage some types of crime or dispute, whereas they rely uh, on more formal legal procedures to deal with others. And then the last two chapters look at how the regime's promulgation of a civic and yet a neoliberal order has translated into police practices. So the penultimate chapter examines how the PSD has enacted internationally backed community policing initiatives over the past decade. And the final chapter reflects on how interpersonal relationships between the police and different sectors of Jordanian society have been impacted by the neoliberal turn in governmentality um, and also by the securitization of aspects of policing over the last decade and the increasing prevalence of new forms of crime. Um, so I thought I would share with you a few of the challenges that I faced along the way. Um, apart from the fact that I had two kids, which um, immediately after completing my PhD, which certainly put my schedule back a bit. Um, so when I started the book, it was 2010, I didn't predict the Arab Spring, uh, the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings um, happening. And certainly a lot has take, changed in Jordan over the past 12 years. And overall, the foundations of order are starting to look a lot more tenuous than they did. Uh, people in general are much more prepared to speak out against the regime and uh, against the monarchy itself. And that's translated into tens of thousands of Jordanians protesting. The police response to that wasn't something that I was um, directly focusing on. And in, the, in, in reality, the majority of the police aren't involved in managing process, um, protests and the majority of the population aren't involved in protesting. Um, but of course, the aspect is very relevant when we think about factors that um, influence or may have influenced regime survival. Um, the, uh, and it's also reasonable to assume that the protests did have an impact on everyday policing and uh, policing of disputes. So the, um, the uprising in the region have changed the context and therefore the significance of studying uh, the police in Jordan. 
Um, if we look at uh, police conduct in neighboring countries in Egypt, Syria, Libya, Yemen, even Tunisia, uh, was reported to have grossly, who were reported to have grossly mistreated the public during the um, uprisings. And by comparison in Jordan, although public criticism of the government um, and the House of Representatives has increased manifold, the police and the army still retain very high levels of public approval, despite instances of uh, repressive police behavior. And just to uh, give you a statistic on that, polling by the Jordanian Center of Strategic studies in 2019 indicated that 92% um, had, uh, sorry, that the police enjoyed 92% of public trust, whereas the House of Representatives enjoyed only 23%. Um, given that the majority of the population didn't uh, participate in public protests, it's reasonable to assume that this impression is based as much on the PSD's handling of protests sorry, as much on the PSD's handling of Monday day-to-day -day disputing processes as it is on their management of the protests. Um, I also, another thing that I didn't take into account um, was the impact that the war in Syria was gonna have on Jordan and uh, specifically the refugee influx um, over 650,000 uh, Syrian refugees uh, were officially registered in Jordan. And of course that had a massive impact on the country, producing all kinds of strains um, on interpersonal relationships and therefore exacerbating interpersonal disputes between Jordanians and non-Jordanians, often over issues related to scarcity of services. Um, and it also had the effect of in increasing international involvement. Um, which in turn has influenced how, influenced how the police has promoted order. We were in social initiatives to counter violent extremism or to boost the coercive capacities of the police. So I did the bulk of my research and interviews in Jordan between 2010 and 2013, but that wasn't really what I was focused on at that point. And I realized it was a serious omission later when I came to revise. So um, 2018, I added a chapter um, looking at the community policing initiatives in Jordan, which apply uh, to the refugee community as well as the host community. Um, so I'm just gonna end with who hopefully is going to wanna read this book, hopefully all of you. <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, most obviously it should be of interest to political scientists and analysts focusing on Jordan. And don't get me wrong, um, there has been some excellent scholarship on Jordan since the Arab uprisings. Um, but for the most part, and actually Yazin's work on corruption and patriotism is, uh, is one of the exceptions, but for the most part, the, um, this work has taken a broadly top-down view of Jordanian politics, i.e. they've accounted for what's happening in terms of um, grand political bargains, elite politics and foreign policies and legal reform. Um, my contention is that we need to look beyond those aspects because alone they don't explain um, how and why Jordan, broadly speaking, survived the Arab uprisings. So in this book, I do take account of the top-down dynamics. Um, certainly they're very important, but I'm also interested in the bottom-up and more day-to-day -day processes. Um, what makes police activities such a, a good point of, or an, a good uh, like uh, subject of analysis for political scientists, but is often often overlooked, is that they're at the point of intersection between state and society. 
Um, and they provide a lens through which to understand the production of water from above and below. Um, and that allows us to see that even in an undemocratic uh, context, order isn't simply imposed from above. It emerges as a sort of give and take iterative process. Um, so in that sense, the research is relevant to those seeking to understand authoritarian resilience in other contexts in the Middle East and further afield. But actually, since I make the case that um, the police rely on these different strategies of power that involve recourse to norms and alliances and legal structures um, and ultimately coercion, I see them equally, this equally applying, albeit in different measure, to police forces in Western liberal democratic contexts. And in fact, the book shows that there isn't necessarily such a drastic difference in the way that the police promote order in these different contexts. Um, second, the book celebrates interdisciplinarity. Um, and I hope as a result, it will have quite a broad appeal. Um, policing is obviously a, an expansive term. It's of interest to criminologists, critical criminologists, sociologists, uh, anthropologists, as well as political scientists. Um, and of course, uh, policymakers engaged in security sector reform. And the book touches on aspects of all of these disciplines in a way that uh, seeks to demonstrate their interlinkages. Um, and finally, the analysis should be accessible to practitioners as well as academics. So there is certainly a, a, a political theory component, um, but there is a, a very practical component that relates to how the PST operates. Um, the, the chapters dealing with domestic abuse and community policing certainly have relevance for international actors. Um, you don't also have to be a specialist on uh, policing to, to find it relevant because there's also a strong emphasis on other societal actors, specifically um, tribal networks and women's civil society organizations. Um, so I don't know if you gave me my warning. Yeah, she didn't because I was enjoying listening <laughs> to you talking. But you well, I think I've had it. <laughs> oh, okay. So I've had my 15 minutes and a few extra. Um, but yeah, so I, hopefully that gives you a flavor of what the book is about. And um, yes, as I said, I really look forward to hearing um, what, what Yasin has to make of it and to uh, taking your questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Um, so before I pass to Yasin, just to remind everybody um, in the Zoom audience to please do type any questions or comments you have in response to Jessica's opening remarks and feel free to kind of continue to write questions through the discussant comments as well. And I will collect questions and put them to the panelists afterwards. So Yasin, over to you now. I'm looking in every different direction because it's a bit hard to know where, where you're seeing us, but um, over to you. Thanks. Thanks, Millie. Um, uh, let me start by first thanking uh, Nadine and the Middle East Center for inviting me to discuss Jessica's book, which I have really, really enjoyed uh, reading. I only wish that I was uh, there in, in person with you in the in the room, uh, both to celebrate uh, the publications at uh, the publication of uh, of the book, but also the end of two grueling years of uh, of you know online events. Um, and I would like to thank Jessica honestly for writing this book. Uh, and as as she said. Um, there's a dearth of, you know, um, kind of good um, uh, bottom-up kind of scholarship on uh, Jordan. 
Um, but I think this, the, the significance of the book goes beyond Jordan. I think she has done a great service to scholarship on Jordan, on the Middle East more generally, and to the various fields that she has just uh, listed. Um, so creating consent in an illiber illiberal order, policing disputes in Jordan is a difficult book to pigeonhole precisely because of the kind of interdisciplinary nature that, that uh, Jessica was just mentioning. Um, as the title suggests, it speaks to salient themes um, in comparative politics, but it does so with an ethnographic and historical sensibility rarely seen in political science scholarship on the region. Rather than starting with the common assumption that security, uh, the security apparatus in Arab states is primarily, if not exclusively, the instrument of state repression, she, she turns her analytic gaze towards what she calls low policing, crimes against individuals such as assault, manslaughter, murder, and domestic abuse, uh, and against possessions such as theft, which constitute the bulk of police work. Only by paying attention to these police practices, she argues, we are able to fully appreciate the place of the police and policing practices in creating and maintaining social and political order in Jordan, a country that is often described as a police state, but which, as she just mentioned, is also recognized as a place where the police is not as heavy handed as in other Arab countries. Contrary to liberal assumptions, she brilliantly demonstrates the police's main function is not repression, but rather maintaining social and political consent. In making her argument, Jessica mobilizes a breathtaking array of empirical material. Historical accounts of legal and policing systems prior to and in the modern state, mass media texts on and by the police, and an amazing range of interviews with current and retired police officers, tribal judges, notables, NGO workers, social activists, and citizens of different social and economic backgrounds describing their experiences with Jordan's highly variegated police and justice system. The result is a thorough and comprehensive history of law and policing in Jordan and a systematic analysis of what is otherwise a patchy terrain where the civil code, tribal customary justice, and Islamic Sharia crisscross and overlap. For its empirical material alone, this book would undoubtedly be a reference point for future scholarship on Jordan and the history of the modern state in the Middle East. Its thoughtful incorporation of customary tribal justice in the emergence and maintenance of modern governmentality stands as a corrective to much of the literature on the region, which to date has either relied on a modernization kind of a paradigm whereby pre-modern systems of justice are or ought to be progressively replaced by the rule of law, or conversely, tended to contrast modern law exclusively with Sharia and Islamic jurisprudence. As Jessica shows, from the perspective of, of a peripheral Ottoman region of what became Transjordan, the picture is neither that of a progressive modernization and by extension liberalization, nor is it that of a Sharia law dualism. Rather, it is a story of, a, of the regime's appropriation of various practices and systems of justice to produce internal consent and external consent vis-a-vis -vis its Western patrons. Through a very compelling use of Gramscian theory of hegemony, she shows how the regime, 
does not project a singular trans-historical ideology, but rather relies on situated acts of authorization and consent that draw on a tradition of legal pluralism and which produce a syncretic system of justice whereby different ideologies of justice interpenetrate in practice. The institution of the police and the security apparatus more broadly is central to this hegemony. Since it engages in these different ideologies of justice, sometimes through distinct, distinct departments, such as the Family Protection Department, and sometimes in their everyday practices of tribal mediation. But like every hegemony, it is always a work in progress. And there are also moments when consent can give way to possibilities of dissent. Equally central to her argument is the way the regime managed to appropriate and transform pre-state customary justice into its everyday policing activities, even after a formal uh, legal recognition of, of, of customary justice has, uh, uh, was abolished in 1976. By appropriating customary justice, the regime not only incorporated non-legal conceptions of justice into the operation of the police, but also recruited tribal notables and continues to do so into that same process. In sum, Jessica shows how a political system deemed illiberal, like that of Jordan's, relies on producing consent in the very same way that, uh, that a liberal one does. The difference here is not between consent and coercion, as is often assumed, but in the mechanisms by which consent is, cre is created and maintained and the kinds of ideologies instantiated in this process. Jessica's use of Gramsci allows her to bring together an unwieldy corpus of data into a coherent argument. One could say, um, it allows her to hegemonize, as it were, what was what, what is at first sight might look like a hedgepodge of contradictory practices and ideologies. Yet her approach is not a top-down application of, of a theory, but rather a bottom-up improvisation of it through a close engagement with her interlocutors over a period of almost 10 years uh, and an attentiveness to the process of cultural translation uh, involved in this theorization. Indeed, this ethnographic sensibility is precisely what makes Jessica's account more nuanced than most political science literature on Jordan or the state in the Middle East more broadly. Concepts like atwa, jaha, musalaha, al-wajh, hurmat al-bayt are duly discussed, concepts that are central to this kind of arbitration process, but also to, to tribal justice, are duly discussed and explained not out of cultural curiosity, but because they play a central ideological role in articulating the tribal sensibility with the practices of the police apparatus and the personal or domestic sphere of the tribe and family with the notion of public order and hence with the political order. So in this spirit of, of Jessica's remarkable ethnographic sensibility and careful theorization uh, that I want to push her a little bit uh, on just a couple of points, um, uh, more as, as, a, as an attempt to really think with her and think along the lines that she has you know, wonderfully kind of uh, uh, developed in the, in the book. So first, um, central to Jessica's framing of the project is the distinction between political crimes or crimes against the state and low crimes, crimes against individuals and possessions. Now, the distinction is very useful as a heuristic, but the highly nuanced account she gives in the book suggests that the distinction is hard to sustain in practice, particularly in police practice, 
and could potentially undermine the overall argument about the articulation of public order and political order. So one example that comes immediately to mind here is the situation where she describes the police uh, you know, finding themselves kind of requesting atwa uh, when one of their officers uh, killed a man in, in, in assault. So kind of the police engages as a, as a party, not as an arbitrator, engages as a party in an arbitration uh, process. Uh, another example from my own fieldwork um, in, in um, in Hayat Tafaili, which is a, uh, a tribal neighborhood in, in East Amman, was how the police handled political activists in the neighborhood, uh, which is a, it's a again, it's a, it's a very highly tribal uh, neighborhood. And uh, the activists there were quite vocal in their uh, uh, criticism of the, of the king and quite explicit uh, uh, um, uh, in, in, in doing so. Um, so rather than making arrests inside the neighborhood and risking an outbreak of tribal violence, they often ambushed them outside the neighborhood to keep the matter individual rather than communal. The eventual release of these uh, activists from custody, however, was usually negotiated through tribal intermediaries, which were sometimes uh, current or retired police officers from the neighborhood itself, right? Kind of playing that sort of uh, tribal uh, role and turning a political matter with you know, a political crime once again into a communal matter and a matter of tribal arbitration. And this connects to my second question about the analytic utility of the concept of uh, regime in the, in the book. And as, as uh, Jessica rightly points out in the introduction, the regime or al-nizam, al-nizam is a nebulous uh, term, but uh, 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 rather than kind of treating it as, a, as an emic concept that warrants analysis in its own right, uh, she quickly kind of provides an, an own definition of it as, as the core members of the royal family, the royal court, and individuals who have exercised um, appreciable influence over either with the monarch as a constant. To my mind, this is a, this is a definition that is quite in line with much of uh, the political science literature on, on Jordan and on authoritarian states more broadly, right? Uh, that, and, and it kind of relies on a distinction between uh, person and office. So, and, and the distinction is between regime and state. So regime is about persons, people versus state, which is an, an apparatus and that, that is presumably distinguishable from these persons. Um, but I wonder to what extent this fits the picture of the highly personalized style of policing, government and arbitration that you describe uh, in, in the book where the distinction between person and office is not so easy to, to, to delineate. Again, and to go back to my own fieldwork in Hayat Tafaili, for instance, uh, the, uh, my activist interlocutors used the term al-nidam, not in the sense of the, of the system, uh, you know, something that can be criticized, but also in the sense of order. Al-nidam right? is, is also an order, uh, which needs to be preserved. And they felt themselves to be part of that order. They were themselves part of that uh, nidam. Um, uh, often, you know, calls for toppling the, the, the regime, toppling the nidam, toppling the system, uh, were often met with uh, uh, rejections that they, that they were in fact part of the uh, nidam. So I wonder if um, maybe kind of looking at the, uh, the, the concept of uh, nidam and the way it articulates, you know, the, the relation between uh, uh, public order and political order could be 
a way to kind of push the really great arguments there even uh, further. And finally, I just had a, a general question for Jessica to maybe um, say a bit more about uh, the place of violence in the system of justice that uh, that she describes in the in the book, not merely in the sense of coercion, but also in the in the process of tribal uh, reconciliation and arbitration, uh, and by extension, uh, the police's engagement in this process. So one notes, for example, that Jordan is as as you know, many other uh, Arab countries is a place where there's a, um, a, a, a ubiquity of um, weapons uh, in, in you know, the possession of, of private individuals uh, and where the, the, these uh, problems, the, the mashakil that you, that you describe in the, in the book could easily become public order issues. And uh, the, the, the term that was often used is fitna. So, uh, 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 um, a mushkila, uh, something that is private between people, could become a public order uh, issue. Yet the police does not have the kind of monopoly over the legitimate, you know, um, uh, use of, of violence that is presumed often in, uh, uh, you know, in kind of standard definitions of the of the state. So there is something I think more to be said about the, the place of, uh, of violence in, in, in this whole process uh, and the, the kind of distribution of violence uh, across society, as it were. Um, again, all of these are just really kind of thoughts that uh, came to my mind as I was uh, reading the book, uh, this you know, really wonderful um, uh, book. And I was trying to kind of think with, uh, with Jessica about the, the, the material she has, and I admit, uh, this is a first reading, and this I, I can you know warn you in advance that this is a this is a very dense book. There's a lot of stuff to think about and with in the book. It's not it's a book very, to read. Very accessible. <laughs> uh, it is accessible. It is accessible, but but it's 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 a book to be read several times. And and I've only had my first reading so far, and I very much look forward to more of them. Thank you. Well, you should have seen it when it was in its original. <laughs> A PhD for. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Yazan, and um, and to Jessica for those comments. It's really wonderful to um, to hear this conversation, and I could listen to you to talk about these questions that Yazan has posed for um, the rest of the session. But I'd love to bring other people into the discussion. So we have a couple of questions on the Zoom Q&A, and please feel free to keep posting your questions there. I'm wondering if we want to start with any question from the audience, and obviously you can, I'll give you some time to respond to Yazan's um, remarks as well, and I had many similar questions actually about this last point you made, Yazan, about the role of violence and the relationship between order and violence, and, and also this kind of, um, I guess, dichotomy between the police as having, as, contributing to a kind of state monopoly on violence, but also potentially kind of undermining undermining that through quotidian practices and interactions. Um, but I will um, see if anybody here would like to raise their hand. And if not, I'll begin with one of the Zoom questions for you and give people a chance to gather their thoughts. So I'm not seeing any. Okay, <laughs> please feel free. Start. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jessica, I really enjoyed that and the presentation. Of course, the book itself, as much as I know it in its first incarnation, um, I enjoyed as well. So, but the, the question I wanted to ask is something you alluded to towards the end of your presentation, and I maybe it's something that you worked on 
when you talk about adding those chapters to the book, is the external intervention, the rather, some might say, unwholesome interest that's been taken in forms of policing and security in a number of countries, but in Jordan as well. Um, and because you, precisely because your book is so focused on the everyday, on the formation of order, a particular kind of consent which depends upon local relations and uh, dynamics. How do you see that has affected it? I mean, the, the people coming in with blueprints of security sector reform, of anti-terrorism policies, of this is the way you should be policing from a very different set of assumptions. Um, and so two questions. One is, has that been intrusive? Has that been disruptive in some ways? And how have Jordanians, both in terms of the uh, those who have to administer the policing and those who have to, as it were, be subject to the policing, how have they reacted to that? Thank you. And maybe I'll just pose one of the Zoom questions for now and then let you respond, because that's a lot to engage with. Um, so from Zoom, we have um, Douglas Brand who asks, was there evidence of lessons learned from managing the influx of Palestinian refugees in the 70s that contributed to relatively successful management of Syrian refugees in Jordan more recently. Um, yeah, and then I have three subsequent questions, but I'll actually hold for the next round, I think. So. Okay, where to start? Um, and there's a lot. And uh, so firstly, actually, I should say to Yasin, thank you so much. You know, you drew out all the, all the, the points that I hoped you would and you were so complimentary that I got complacent and then and then you hit me with some very very uh prescient points that um that I I I, I recognize are, are certainly um worth grappling with um I think maybe so what I would say about because one of the things and it is important to recognize that this was a process like when I started the book, it, it's like the whole context of studying Jordan as and its place within the region really has changed. Like this, what we're looking at and the, the lens and the framing has really changed so much over the last ten years. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that, and and in part that's a related that's you know a re result of the Arab uprisings. Um, in part, it's. It is the process of the neoliberal globalization process, which is, you know, nowhere is exempt or is unaffected by that. Um, and, and it's also, you know, the, the scholarship has moved on and, um, you know, decolonizing literature has also affected the way the lens that we look at things. Um, I think in terms of the, when I started looking at the, police, like I was coming to it from the perspective of having um, worked in Iraq with a, a police force in the state in the status of being constructed. And um, Jordan was kind of presented as a, like a successful example of, you know, they've got it right here. You know, they've managed over, you know, they've had the chance to make evolutionary changes over, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch to say that it's been evolutionary, even in Jordan. I mean, they had like 30 years of martial law and, you know, multiple exposures to, to wars, but on a regional scale, it has been re relatively evolutionary. And, and that's certainly, um, you could see in the way that the police had developed and 
that had been able to appropriate these um, tribal customs and um, make them into part of the repertoire of responses to common disputes. Um, and, and, and that is like part of the, the framing, the hegemonic framing is that they really became part of um, common sense for people even who didn't come from that tribal background or the, from the West Bank or uh, Palestinian Jordanian perspective where that wasn't necessarily so familiar. The, the context of um, customary laws was, was so ingrained into the way that um, disputes were managed that it, it became like part of the system. And I think like the evolutionary, maybe I kind of overplayed this evolutionary um, now, when I look at Jordan, it does look much more unstable um, and kind of, you know, this phrase Jordan on the brink is, is forever coming up. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and it has, it is facing incredible tensions. Um, but underneath there are still, you know, it has to, to, to lie back to, to like backing it up is this history of over decades, these microprocesses that contribute towards collectively people like accepting types of domination they wouldn't necessarily in a in a, another context where um like iraq for instance um so i think when when um when yasin talks about the uh the police use of violence or not having a monopoly of um whether it does or doesn't have the whether the state in jordan has a monopoly over the use of violence um I was looking at it that it does. And um, and I still think that it, it does. Like in Jordan, if you compare that to Syria, uh, Iraq, much of the region, and, and that's what makes it possible to study it with use of these theories. Like once the state starts to break down, it's a different question. You can't use the same approaches and you can't. Um, so I think like, uh, that's a long-winded way of saying that, um, I do think that Jordan's like their police, the police force does have um, exercise a monopoly of violence and that sometimes it crosses, sometimes it's kind of on the side of the state and sometimes the fact that the, the police is so heavily constituted by um, tribal uh, East bankers means that it's kind of not on the side of the state depending on what the issue is. And it's quite um, ambiguous and um, malleable in that sense. Um, just to turn to what Charles said about like uh, the question about um, international intervention, I don't think that it's all, you know, it's one of those things like um, Jordan is because it is uh, so strategically important, it has become the uh, recipient, like the lucky or unlucky recipient of incredible amount of international funding and, um, and attention. Um, I don't think that's all mispurposed mis or like, and, and certainly when you look at the way that it's been directed into uh, the coercive apparatus, whether we're talking about the, the PSD or the, um, the regular police or the gendarmerie, because there have been quite a few initiatives uh, funding a more coercive side um, of policing in Jordan. Um, it's been kind of, uh, there are two different rationales, like there is, there, the intention that it has been like the US and uh, the UK and the EU have been uh, providing funding for fundamentally for security slash um, refugee related 
um, reasons. And so that they, are, they are certainly um, geostrategic purposes. How they're received and what effect they take in, uh, in Jordan has been very variable. And I think like, you know that when we think about security sector reform um one of the biggest criticisms is that there's been this like cookie cutter approach and that the same model is used in place to place to place and it takes no account of local circumstances and um you know as a result it's very easy for it to be um misdirected or, or to have almost the opposite effect to what is intended um I wouldn't necessarily say that's true, looking at um, certainly the, the community policing initiatives that have gone on in Jordan over the last uh, decade, which initially targeted the refugee community. And part of the reason I think for the success of uh, that initiative was that it was uh, directed towards uh, refugee camps, um, which were quite kind of separated from the rest of Jordanian society and, and therefore were kind of easier to control and the conditions were quite, you know, they had very active NGO um, community and the police were able to work with the NGOs and have the kind of effects that they, they wanted on. Um, and that those kind of conditions don't exist in, in broader um, Jordanian society. So if you think about like the key words in community policing, which like from a Western perspective, we think about like public public partnerships, um, problem solving, um, prevention. So those are the catchphrases. They don't translate in the same way. When uh, one of the biggest problems about like the partnerships is like when you trans when you try and superimpose uh, police public partnerships in a Jordanian context, what you find is that the public partners are usually figures that the traditional figures from tribal backgrounds or um, if from civil society, there are uh, civil society organizations that have themselves been kind of generated by the regime. Um, so yes, I think uh, that's all like, <laughs> yeah. I'll say on that for now. Perfect. Um, thank you so much. I'm gonna pose a few more of the Zoom questions because we have quite a lot coming in, um, but feel free to raise your hand if you would like to intervene for the people in the room. So a question from Eric, Woods, Woods, I'm not quite sure if I pronounced that correctly, um, which I think you've kind of already spoken to a bit, but he asks how you see the Jordanian police in comparative perspective and whether you see the police force in Jordan as more benign than, than in neighboring countries and mentions uh, Egypt and Syria specifically, but you've spoken a bit about mm -hmm. Iraq and, and various other contexts already. Um, well, Al-Khatib, I again, Hope I pronounced your name correctly and I apologize. Um, if not, um, asks how Western cooperation with Jordanian police further supports, he asks the role of law um, in Jordan. And also if you looked into how the state marketed police as soft power in dealing with protest very smoothly and how the relationship between um, the state's kind of, I guess, marketing of the police force in dealing with protests relates to the themes in your book. Bruce Stanley asks, as technology and data collection um, in policing in cities like Amman shifts towards platform policing and corporations play a greater role in da mm. data control, does this shift the police's relationship to interpersonal mm. disputes? and attitudes among the population towards low policing. And finally, David Morris asks, 
um, with a focus on mediating low crime by the PSD between tribes and families to maintain community cohesion, allowing high crime to be dealt with through the state judiciary, does this mean that victims of low crime do not receive state justice and certain crimes are not recognized, e.g. violence against women and girls, race, hate crimes, etc. And I know you, you kind of deal with some of these themes in the latter chapters of the book, but perhaps for the benefit of the audience here, um, you could elaborate on some of that. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, okay, so in no particular order, <laughs> um, I think the, the question about like platform policing and uh, certainly is something that that I have to that I have to take into account, and um, so the question was whether um, that it it has an impact. Um, policing has become more distanced and depersonalized in a way, um, and does that have an impact on the kind of disputes that I'm looking at, so interpersonal disputes? And yes, it does. And in the last chapter, I, I do kind of have a look at um, the impacts of what I say is it's kind of also related to. Um, the neoliberal trends um, and the kind of globalization, opening up of Jordan to all kinds of crimes. So not just, so, you know, things like uh, drugs, traffic, uh, human trafficking, um, the, the, and cybercrime, like, so cybercrime has been one of the biggest growing crime areas and, and drug use also in Jordan over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and there are things that I don't look at, and and it's true. They're huge, hugely growing, and the police, the PSD, is developing. Uh, they have departments, whole whole sections, which deal specifically with um, these areas. At the same time, you know the the kind of there is in Jordan as elsewhere, like the the trend towards um, like uh, so policing. Um, against taking taking measures uh to protect public property as well as like private uh corporations and um that that are becoming like increasingly important and actually the private sector plays a, a big part of that as well as the the psd so it's certainly true that these are, these are areas that are expanding um and i i mean to some extent impinge on the the interpersonal disputes but also i mean in some sense i would say these these types of basic uh disagreements always exist like in every society and that's kind of what drew me to this topic is that um you know no matter how sophisticated or neoliberalized or whatever that these basic disputes exist in every context and they're and they're worth looking at and understanding how they're dealt with um and so I don't think that that kind of takes away from the relevance of, um, of the analysis. Um, going back to, there was a previous question about whether, the, um, whether there have been lessons learned in the way that uh, Jordan dealt with the Palestinian refugees um, now in their uh, dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis. I mean, I think it is it's a different age uh, in, you know, um, UNRWA was instrumental in dealing with the Palestinian um, refugee crisis in Jordan. Um, now, the international response has been much more multifaceted and uh, also not just from um, Europe and um, the UN agencies, but also from the Gulf states have also had a big role. The Emirates have had a, um, a important role in, in um, so I'm not sure, I wouldn't want to say too much about comparing 
um, their responses in that light. Um, so the question about making comparisons is something that really fascinates me. And there are so many, I'm not in any way like a quantitative analyst. I do think, you know, there are so many variables. What we can say about the police in every context is that they are inherently political. And, but the point is that the political role they play is quite different in different societies. Um, so I'm not so familiar with uh, Syria and Egypt, but certainly in Iraq, um, the police, there's this, uh, the patrimonial um, aspect, which we see in Jordan, the, the way that the police are, are treated as a, a source of employment for the population, that is certainly the case in Iraq. But um, Iraq is on a very different trajectory in terms of um, I'd, always, I'd almost say Iraq is a democracy, formally speaking, um, because I actually did some work on the Iraqi police last year. And I think that even though Iraq is a, a formal democracy, um, Jordan, the police in Jordan have more in common with Western liberal democracies. And it's more a comment on not the regime type, but about stability. So whether evolution exists or, or not, if, if there has been a complete breakdown in social order, it's starting afresh, then the chances are that the role of the police in interpersonal disputes is much less because they're just acting as the coercive face of the, the regime to, to survive. Um, oh, I feel like you've asked me quite a few more questions that I haven't even come to grips with yet, but- okay. um, Back to them always if you- um... Uh, yeah, I mean, the protest question, did you answer? Sorry, can you repeat that? So, so he asks, um, did you look into how the state marketed the police as a soft power in dealing with protest very smoothly? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, when I was there, like 2010, 2011, this it was a discussion that was um, going on within the PSD. They were very conscious um, and they were getting advice from uh, European governments on how to manage the protests and uh, it was seen that it was viewed as being uh, extremely important that they were seen to respond correctly um, and actually you know one of the things that at the time was of interest was that the uh, downtown protests they were policed by non-armed policemen and mostly I mean most of the police in Jordan are armed um, as they are in most Arab countries um, but you know, which was seen as a way of de-escalating um, potential tensions. But um, afterwards it was revealed that actually they were members of the gendarmerie. So um, there was a deliberate uh, effort to um, present the police in a, in a much more um, benign way. And I think the other side of that is that, um, going back to the international involvement, I think there has been a kind of conscious strategy to on the one hand, okay, there's been backing for the gendarmerie and it's seen as almost like on the other hand, well, we have to do something on the soft policing side. So the community policing as a strategy of counter-violent uh, extremism um, or like, so I mean, particularly counter-violent extremism, but um, generally just social cohesion. Um, and those are the kind of the two prongs, like, okay, we, we so we'll build up the coercive capacity of the gendarmerie, but at the same time, we're, we're giving um, the 
uh, we're doing more to kind of sustain or generate um, more productive relations with uh, the community. That's the, the rationale behind it as, as I see it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Other questions from the audience? We have a question here, and if you'd like to introduce yourself, feel sure, free. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Uh, hi, my name is Nasser. Um, I'm actually visiting uh, from I'm a PhD candidate at MIT. Um, and so I first I wanted to thank you. I think this is, I mean, the project's fantastic. I'm very excited to get my hands on the book. Um, and so I wanted to go back to something that, that Yazan had said a little bit earlier. Um, the question that had popped into my head, you started to answer it a little bit in your first response, but you, um, the question in my head was, if policing is coming from below, does it necessarily always have to be pro-regime, right? That was my, my sort of general question. Uh, and the reason I'm thinking about it that way is that, um, you know, this question about whether they're part of the regime or if they're reliant on the regime, the relationship or the interest of the regime in policing, if it's particularly focused on um you know sort of community dynamics concerned about um you know uh you know tribal forms of justice um to, to what extent does the regime involve itself uh in you know in, in those matters to what extent is it concerned about just the you know the general concept of order versus certain types of order specific uh, uh forms of, of order um and to what extent i guess um i'm asking like what to what extent is um, the police then able either to, you know, remain on board with whatever, you know, you know, politics the regime is pushing in times in which people might be challenging the, the regime itself? Mm -hmm. um, and at what times might they separate? I'm thinking of the case of the military in Egypt in 2011, right? Like, I know it's a different, it's an entirely different sort of mm -hmm. uh, apparatus and relationship with the Mubarak regime, but that's what popped into my head. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's what I'm asking. I guess a secondary related question is about coordination between different sort of um, regions um, uh, throughout Jordan and whether, um, you know, the if, if the regime, does the regime behave differently towards certain, you know, sort of policing units uh, in, in different uh, areas mm -hmm. that would actually also tell us, I think, a little bit about mm -hmm. how they're thinking about control um, and whether, you know, there is uh, sufficient mm -hmm. separation. I'm sorry, that was a really long set of questions. Yeah, can I actually, can I just answer yeah, that? Well, I've still got it in my head. Um, thank you, that's, uh, excellent questions. And um, so um, my contention is not that the policing itself comes from below per se, but that um, order is negotiated from above and below and that the police are kind of at this point of intersection. So, but that doesn't negate your point about like, do, are the police necessarily kind of pro-regime or, and, and I think it is important to try and to, to distill the different components of, um, you know, there's endless debates on what co constitutes the state, um, but in pretty much every definition, the coercive apparatus are part of the state, um, but, you know, this uh, statistics stick in my head, you know, that there, there is a huge disparity between public opinion of, of the of the House of Representatives and, and the government and uh, the police. Um, and I mean, it's quite common for militaries to have uh, higher approval ratings, whereas police forces generally have lower than the army because they have to get more involved in the messier aspects of day-to-day -day, uh, interpersonal relationships. And um, uh, so I think in that sense, Jordan is, is probably quite 
exceptional. I mean, in fact, that statistic was the highest in that it was our barometer did polling of the region and uh, Jordan had the highest levels of public approval rating for the police in that year. So um, I think that not necessarily, the police isn't necessarily just stuck to, certainly it's a different component. Um, as to, you know, because, and looking back into the trends of um, the last 20, 30 years, and um, historically, the police force has drawn on the East Bank, a tribal population. Obviously, with after, you know, with the um, liberalization of the market liberalization, a, a lot of public employment for um, East Bankers was cut, and that had a very drastic relation, uh, impact on the relationship between um, East Bankers and, and the monarchy. Um, but the security forces, so the, uh, the police and the army remained to be the kind of vestiges of, um, of East, East Bank um, predominance. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean, and they were traditionally seen as the bastions of support for the regime. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that within the police, I'm, I, I, <laughs> it is, it's constructed as a highly um, pro-monarchical, pro pro-patriotic institution. Um, but in terms of what people think of it, I don't know. I think there probably is quite a lot of, even when there is a criticism of the monarchy, there is a, a different view of the police because, you know, so many, the police are constitute such a lot uh, people people know in their local neighborhood they know their cousins or their uncles or their uh, their kids or, or and that's not just for um east bankers it's also for um palestinian jordanians that um there are a lot of uh, west bankers also in the security apparatus they just don't reach the same levels of influence um and they don't have the same so i think that leads on to whether the treatment of whether the police kind of reacts to uh differently to different parts of society. Geographically, yes, certainly I think that's true. And I know, I mean, Yasin's research and Heid uh, Fehler, that, that he's looked at um, <clears throat> specifically how the relationship between the regime, the regime and the, and the uh, security apparatus and the, and the local population. Um, I think like that it's easier for um, some parts of the population to relate to the police than others and that is certainly the case in the UK as well um but so it's, it's a geographical thing but it's also kind of a class thing and a ethnic ethnic thing um yeah there are a lot of uh <coughs> multiple ways you can you can kind of uh, dissect the police society relationship yes I would like to piggyback on that question briefly and then pose one more question from the Zoom while I give other people a chance to raise their hands. And just to kind of, yeah, I, I mean, I think my question is related a little bit to yours, but but going in a slightly different direction. I think there are kind of two bodies of, of work in the book that you're um, engaging with, certainly in the political science literature. And, and one is this kind of almost like I don't want to say like a straw man, but a foil almost that that order is kind of antithetical to violence or serves as a countervailing force to violence and, and potentially kind of 
a lack of monopoly on violence and, and, and the fragility and, and, and disruption that ensues. And another is this kind of idea of order. And as you kind of describe throughout the book, coercion and consent as foundational to the production of violence and specifically the violence of, of state power. And you engage with the Schwedler and Khalili book and, and other kind of colonial um, manifestations of policing. And so I'm curious for you to just kind of talk a little bit more about how you conceive of, of order and social order, which is a term that you, you do unpack throughout the book, but maybe for the purposes of this conversation, because um, it certainly, I think, leaves open some normative questions about the ways in which order manifests as violence. And I think that dovetails a little bit with relationship to regime stability, mm -hmm. but, and, and also some of the questions earlier about, um, about uh, kind of tribal power and factional power and kind of fragmented violence within society. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit more about uh, of your thoughts on that. And then James Barry has asked a question um, in the chat about, so he says, with the convergence of formal and informal justice mechanisms, do you see a tension between achieving justice for individuals versus maintaining community order? If so, what advice would you give international donors seeking to support the PSD on thematic areas such as gender-based violence, especially coming from traditions where individual rights are a primary focus? Sorry, can you repeat that last question? Yes, so um, with the convergence of formal and informal justice mechanisms, mm -hmm. do you see a tension between achieving justice for individuals main versus maintaining community order? and asks what advice you would give donors seeking to support police capacity building, police reform, PSD on thematic areas such as gender-based violence that you kind of talk about mm -hmm. in the book. Um, and then he says, especially coming from traditions where individual rights are a primary focus. So the kind of international yeah. development donor, yeah. police okay. capacity building, rule of law strengthening. Sure, impetus. okay, yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so for your question about you know how what role violence plays in the the constitution of order um i mean i look at uh i treat order as as being a, a product of what i call it as the rules of the game and i take like Wittgenstein and winch's definition it doesn't necessarily mean that these are universally agreed upon it means that they're recognized as being meaningful um, and so like the, the rules of the game are what constitute and they're made up of practices, norms, everyday um, institutional structures that um, collectively um, provide the foundation for this, this mesh of a social order. Um, so I kind of, I use, and it's true, I, I use the hegemonic, Gramscian hegemonic structure to, to unpick that and look at, well, how, how is it constructed? And violence is part of a continuing rather than being, uh, rather than it being a case of um, consent versus coercion, um, that these different strategies of norms are used to produce um, or alliances or patronage networks or in some cases, um, legal structures are used um, and in the last resort is violence. But violence has also been look, taking the long view. Um, police violence has been fundamental to ultimately producing consent. 
So it is like I, I kind of do equate the the um, social order to looking at the hegemonic project and the way that it's been constructed. Um, I think um, with regard to yeah, how we can understand um, Jordan itself, like the, the second question with regard to like kind of collective versus individualist um, uh, visions of, uh, of governmentality and, and policing, um, Jordan itself is struggling with that. So it's not just a question of um, Jordan has this like uh, collective, has this tradition of, um, of uh, tribal customary rules and, and then that um, women's rights are, are coming as some kind of alien. Mm -hmm. So within Jordan as a whole and within the police um, in particular, those are tensions that exist um, and different departments within the police actually take different uh, positions on them. So the, the women's, uh, the family protection department is made up of police who volunteer to be most uh, police posts in Jordan are not voluntary, so um, police are just allocated to whichever department they are, but because it's recognised that uh, there's still, there's a lot of normative um, questions or that there's still some taboos surrounding the, the principle of the state intervening in uh, women's uh, and domestic abuse against women and children, but particularly women, um, the, the police are kind of trod more carefully and because they're because they have a like more traditionalist reputation, um, they choose volunteers who particularly want to to work for that force. So I mean I, I don't know that it's necessarily it's certainly when when we look at the the challenges facing um, international NGOs and wanting to support um, different parts of the police force which might have quite different agendas. Um, that's, that's, those are struggles that are going on within Jordan itself, you know, I don't think it's a, um, quite a binary, um, and I think that, you know, it's going to continue that sometimes, uh, support is going seemingly in counter directions, so sometimes it's going towards, uh, initiatives that promote individual, um, rights, and in other cases it might be, uh, something that is, um, trying to impose order as a blanket term, um, prevent violence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we have about 10 minutes, eight minutes left. So um, would we like to take any? Yeah, Mary, go ahead. Do I need that? Well, it sounds great. I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure whether this is a relevant question or not, but I was kind of thinking about the work we were doing together in the CRP about community policing. And I'm wondering, is community policing different from what you describe as kind of low crimes? Or somebody said it was low crimes. I don't know whether it's you in the book, but they're sort of ordinary citizens' disputes. Are these two different things or do they come together? And then... My next question was, of course, we were doing a lot of work on security sector reform and our colleague Sarah was always arguing very strongly that security sector reform 
just always fails unless you've changed the power relations at the top. And in a way, this seems to be making a contrary argument to that, that you can have within existing illiberal power relations, you can still have mm -hmm. a reasonably functioning security sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I actually, yeah, so last year we, we as part of the conflict research program, this was one of the key ideas or, that um, security sector reform is uh, is quite often has counterintuitive or the the impact of um, interventions, international interventions, quite often have the opposite results of those intended, um, and because like ultimately it's all political. So you know you can do as much as you want to the police force, but if uh, the if the driving rationale at the top is using the police for a particular purpose then it doesn't make any difference. Um, but I actually do, uh, and, and this is in, this is what I came out believing as well in, in looking at the police in Iraq. I do think, you know, you could say it's just superficial, but I think that, that certainly when we're talking about Iraq and the, and, you know, grave humanitarian uh, violations, it makes just still having police who have, because I mean, the vast majority of the police in Iraq had no um, proper training, and they don't. That, so I, not, I do not dismiss the importance of, um, or in some cases, human rights training, because that is one of the courses that often is dismissed as being like purely, like a, a, a positive phrase that has no impact. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And certainly in Jordan, it's a different proposition. The police are much more institutionalized and professional and they have been for a long time. Um, and, I, and I think people, the public does make different decisions about different parts of their state. You know, it's not, it's not the state, it is. Um, so um, I don't dismiss it. I'm not a complete cynic in that regard. Um, I do think that empirically, most cases of security sector reform have not been successful, but I wouldn't disregard it on that. And I, and I think like, so that where we're community policing uh, counts as low policing, yes, often it does. I mean, that's the thing about the community policing. It's like, it's a very, it's a plastic, and that's the, I use a quote saying community policing is a, a plastic term that means whatever you want it to. Um, and, uh, in the Jordanian context, that's actually what the chapter discusses, you know, the different um, ways that it's been interpreted in Jordan. Um, but so, so one part of it is certainly um, concerned with low policing. Um, but it's also, it is also about um, patriarchal relations between the regime and the population, because it's about kind of teaching people to be good citizens. And that's, that comes through in parts of the initiative of, of Community policing programs in Jordan. Um, yeah. We have one last question, I think, at the back. Um, just wait for the microphone. Um, I look forward to seeing the, this version of the book. Um, I I have, can I? And, or can I ask a theoretical question or kind of Ooh. epistemological question? <laughs> I was Claudia, fascinated. I, <laughs> I was fascinated actually by the examples that you've given about the majority 
right? And I wanted to ask you about the status of the majority. So you said that the majority of the population supports the police, like in surveys, that this is the majority of the work that the police are doing. Um, and I wonder what does it tell us, right, uh, in relation to what is not the majority in terms of what the police are doing. And I'm thinking here how the majority is used both kind of quantitatively, right, to, to actually justify actions towards the minority, right, as an assumption that as long as the majority is not affected by it, it's fine, right, or forms of violence are fine. But also what it tells us maybe about forms of social change that are not necessarily coming from the majority, right? So it's kind of the, the kind of status of the majority, I guess that's what I'm asking, which I'm yeah, fascinated about. But you can also park this question if you don't want to deal with it. No, I mean, that's like, thank you very much, Claudia. And I, um, two minutes, okay. So what I'd say is, I was going to pause and think about that, but um, <laughs> no I guess I'll say that, um, I mean, actually the majority of the population in Jordan are not East Bankers, and that's like because so it's a minority position that the they, uh, you know, the statistics are not clear, but uh, it's thought that maybe 55% of the population are Palestinian Jordanian, whereas maybe 35%, uh, and don't quote me on this because it, it, there is no consensus, but uh, far fewer of the East Bankers, and the East Bankers have had traditionally the hold over the police, so it is the mi minority in that sense, policing the majority. And so that's why it's quite interesting that the majority, if we are to believe these polls, and you have to have some credence in polls, and that um, find that, um, that have some kind of measure of confidence in the police. So that doesn't address whether the, the, the police are, are, what it means for the minority, it, it doesn't address that, but, um, Maybe we'll address that in a future time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful place to finish and just want to really uh, extend my thanks to Jessica for writing this really outstanding book. I think Yazan used the words a breathtaking array of empirical material and I really um, join him in, in kind of uh, that endorsement. It's just a really a, a, a fascinating read and I know I will go back to this book many times as well. So thank you to Jessica, thank you to Yazan for your really incredibly thought-provoking comments and I think as you can see from the discussion we could have kept talking about this for a really long time. So I just want to also extend final thanks to everybody who joined online and everybody who's here in the room um, and to remind you of the um, the discount code if you are going to purchase the book to go to Cambridge University Press website is the Middle East Centre or the Cambridge CUP site. Yeah, the CUP site for that QR code. Um, so thank you all.